right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF, obviously broadcasting from away. I'm away, and I'm doing radio voice. Why am I doing radio voice? Get out of me. Get out of me. Get. Go away, radio voice. Let Mark talk. Why can't we just talk about things in this way? Stop it. Get out, radio voice. Go. Go. George Clooney is on the show today. All right? Yes, George Clooney is on the show today. Uh, and it was it was great. It was it was great. He's George Clooney. Uh, Clooney, I guess, kind of knows me, which is which is nice. And and we focused a lot of this conversation uh, on his directing work. And uh, he's got this new movie he directed, The Tender Bar, which is the screening I saw him at. That's coming out in December. And I also just wanted to mention before I don't I don't know that I mention it enough. Um, if you're new here. You can listen to every episode of WTF ad-free with a Stitcher Premium subscription. Go to WTFPod.com and click on the Premium tab. And while you're there, click on the Merch tab and get some holiday WTF gifts. There are new holiday sweatshirts. The Hawaiian cat shirt is very exciting. And there's a a bunch of uh, Christmas sweater-style sweatshirts there that are kind of funny. As I said, if you're new to this show, there's 1,200 and some odd episodes of it and you can go get it at uh, wtfpod.com and click on the premium tab to have access to all of that so i'm in new york city and uh i've been here for days came out a few days ago and it's the first time i've been here since before the pandemic i didn't really know what to expect but because i've been outperforming so much and out in the world and at the comedy store i'd gotten used to engaging with people, having mask on, mask off, whatever's necessary. But I've been out in the world among people for months now. So I thought I was sort of, uh, it wasn't a big deal. I'd acclimated to masked audiences and to the sort of COVID realities of the world we live in. But I had nothing to prepare myself really just for the excitement and feeling of being back in this fucking city again. I mean, it's great. I mean, the city is alive. People are out It's interesting to see how everything has been adjusted, all the in-street dining and whatnot. But I guess people on some level, given that uh, the vaccine rate is very high here and people are moving through the world with relative safety, but they are still taking precautions. But it's just that people are out and about. And I was sort of amazed by it for some reason. I don't know why, but I started sort of posting about it, being amazed by it. And of course, New Yorkers are like, what do you, what do you fucking think was happening? Of course, we're fine. We, we don't stop. It's New York. What the fuck's the matter with you? What, do you think everything stopped? I did. I did think everything stopped. What are you fucking crazy? This is New York City. That kind of aggravated, thick pride of the uh, toughness of New York was just coming at me on the goddamn Instagram. Like, what do you, what do you think was going on? We've been good the whole time. All right, I get it. I get it. But it's just been kind of uh, exciting. I love this city. And there's something about this city, if you interface with this city, if you know how to interface with this city, that's always exciting about being here. Always exciting. We had to get a car to go up to uh, Connecticut, rent a car in the city, drive up to Ridgefield, Connecticut. This was uh, last Thursday. And do the show up there at the Ridgefield Playhouse. And it's weird to rent a car in New York City. You got to go to a garage where the Hertz is kind of embedded in some garage under a building. 
and uh, grabbed the car, ripped it up to Connecticut. Beautiful little uh, situation up there, 500-seat theater. But they get all the people. It was a weird night only because, I don't know, we got up there very early and then, you know, I, 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 I've got a sort of, I, know, I wouldn't say I'm cynical, but I've got kind of a, just from all the stand-up I'm doing, I've got sort of an edge to me a little bit. And I just pulled up the calendar. You know, they have the calendar book of everyone who's going to be, you know, that they hand out who's coming to the Ridgefield Playhouse. But I was just going through the roster of people that were coming to that venue. Small venue, 500 seats. You know, people like Paul Anka, the Wallflowers, comedians like, you know, Tom Papa and Segura and Regan's going to do a few days there. And then uh, Joan Jett. It's just not a big place, man. 500 seats but it's close enough to the city i guess it's in in a routing sense it's uh it's on the way to other things art garfunkel was uh was coming and i just couldn't let up i could not let up on art garfunkel not that art garfunkel deserves it but i was just like does garfunkel need the bread the guy's 80 he's 80 and then i was told by somebody i don't need to mention any names that art garfunkel is not the most pleasant guy in the world to work with at 80 or at any time. And I just it was just this ongoing callback. And I just don't know what the fuck is wrong with me. What do I got to rip on Art Garfunkel for? Right? Just like that audience of people who are 80 years old, 75 years old, just wondering, sitting there going, is he going to sing the uh, bridge over troubled water? Do you think he can still sing that? It'd be nice to see if a man that age still sing. <laughs> Like a bridge over trouble. That's all I can sing without being charged. But uh, I kind of was a little hard on art, and I don't know if it's going to get back to him or whether I should feel bad for it. But there must be something about touring, whether he needs to or not, knowing that Paul Simon could, if that theater was struggling, just he could probably buy that theater and pay everyone who performed there for five years without even really feeling the hit. But that would be, I don't know, it'd be a different theater then. It'd be sort of like, you know, no more art. Art doesn't come, no more art, and Edie Brickell plays every two weeks. Maybe Steve Martin will come with the banjo. I mean, I, he's got to have a chip on his shoulder, right? Am I projecting? I got nothing against him. Made some beautiful songs. And behind. Art, in, in all honesty, I enjoyed the Breakaway record a lot. I, I loved it. But it was a great show up there. Massive riffage. Hour and 45 minutes. Nice heading into the big show at Town Hall. Oh, God. Driving back from Connecticut in the nighttime, late at night, 11 at night, ripping down the FDR like the old days. I used to own a car in this town back in the late 80s. VW Golf. A VW Golf. Because I'd rip around the city doing sets then i have to go up to the new england area to do thursday friday saturday runs but god damn it if like i said before if you've got the interface for this city if you've spent time here if you've lived here and you have no there's no distance between you it's like riding a bike it's like hooking up with an old buddy i haven't been here in a year and a half two years you get here boom you just plugged right the fuck back in i know how to get around this town i know where to eat in this town i know how to walk down the street in this fucking city yeah i do i know how to drive in this fucking city exciting exciting 
ripping down that FDR 11.30 at night. You get out of that car, you feel like you've been through something. Feel like you should be taking a helmet off. Man, exciting. I have a lot of fans in this town because everybody's out on the street, walking around on the train, wearing the earbuds, whatever. So walking down the street and I noticed over to the right of me, there's some black dude giving me side eye and I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. He says, anyone ever tell you you look like Mark Maron? I go, I am him. And he just cocked his head and go, motherfucker, and walked away. That is a great moment. That is the best moment of recognition. Motherfucker. Yes. Yes, it's me. Yes. My mother came out with her sister for the town hall show. Now the town hall show, it was beautiful. You know, it was a great show. But the weird thing is, I feel like I've been working up to that show, this New York show, this town hall show. But the truth of the matter is, I've been working almost every night that I can work in one way or the other for months and months now, putting together this hour. And I've had some great shows over the, over the past few months. I mean, that show in Ridgefield, I mean, look, Art Garfunkel took a hit, but it was a great show. And Town Hall was a great show, but it was one of many great shows, one of many, but it was great. Uh, it was a good time, and it was the proper size for me. That's what, that's really where I like it, to top out at 1,500. This is a perfect size theater, perfect size space. Everybody at the venue was great. No opener, straight out. But uh, I just wanted to thank everybody for coming out there. It was, it was. Uh, I, I just, it's different now. The last couple of years, things have changed inside of me. Certainly since the death of Lynn, certainly since the pandemic, but I'm pretty grounded. I, I don't give many fucks. Uh, I've got really nothing to lose. And it was great. It was great. It was great to work. It's great to be back in New York. Also, before we uh, begin the uh, the Clooney experience here, I wanted to uh, thank everybody for the feedback on the cancel culture episode we did last week. A lot of feedback. And, you know, a little bit of pushback for whatever that's worth. I mean, we really weren't presenting an argument. We were presenting a context and uh, an empathetic point of view. But uh, so when people take things out of context or are unable to wrap their head around the context or make the connections without cramming things together, making accusations and then whining like fucking baby men that uh, something I have said or something that was represented on the show infringed upon some element of their you know, uh, ability to whine uh, effectively. Uh, a little of that, but not much. Mostly people were, were grateful for the historical contextualizing of uh, can't say anything anymore. I can't do anything. I can't, no more, you can't say anything anymore without hurting someone's feelings. The historical context of that. What's interesting is that, and I realized this the other day, and I'm guilty of it myself. Like when I was younger starting out, I really saw myself as part of the legacy of whatever, you know, uh, boundary-pushing comics were, you know, the angry sort, the shock-driven ones, the ones who uh, uh, present the angry truth, man. Yeah, It was just the way I was, just angry. But I do remember that I, I was able to hang my own victimness on my anger. Uh, that, like, you know, I can't get club work, man. I'm too edgy, man. I'm too angry. And the weird thing was, it was it wasn't that funny. It wasn't that funny. Uh, yeah, I was angry, and sometimes I had something to say, but mostly I was angry because I was afraid, or whatever you know, whatever anger comes from, whatever is at the core of anger. Usually, if it's personal, it's sadness or fear. 
But as I grew older and as I grew better and as I grew funnier, you know, I moved through it. I'm still kind of cynical and dark and uh, certainly capable of saying shit that, you know, rides a line. But, uh, but, it, but when I was younger, it was a way to blame or something to hang my laurels on and also to, to, to sort of claim that it was the reason that I wasn't getting work. And I noticed a lot of these sort of second stringer uh, free speech anti-woke comics, they can say like, yeah, that's why I'm not getting work, man. It's these fucking woke club owners, these fucking triggered audiences. That's why I'm not getting work. Like now they don't even have to face up to the music that they might not be funny. They know they can live in the delusion of victimhood because they're just too goddamn edgy, man. They're just telling too much truth, man. They're just laying it out how it is. They're just saying the words they want to say with the freedom they have. And hey, man, if I'm not getting work, that's why, man. I'm being fucking shut out because I'm too fucking truthful, not afraid. Fuck the woke people. Might be because you're not funny. So I told you Clooney's here. The Tender Bar, the movie that I mentioned earlier, his movie that he directed opens in theaters December 17th, and it will be streaming on Prime Video in the new year. Also, this was taped two and a half weeks ago. All right. So the fatal shooting accident on the set of the movie Rust had just happened like uh, like a week before we talked. So it was fresh on on both of our minds. We talked about it. And I also wanted to mention that, uh, yes, we do talk about Michael Clayton because, yes, Michael Clayton is one of my favorite movies. I watch it, yes, uh, several times a year. Yep, I do. Of course, New York City. Wait, wait, think we just stopped because of the sickness? It's fucking New York. This is me talking to George Clooney. Hey. Hey, man, how you doing? What's up, buddy? Well, you know, I'm in uh, fabulous Australia. Lucky you. In quarantine. Really? Yeah, you, you gotta have to. You have to stay in one place for 14 days before you're allowed to go out and breathe. But that's okay. It's nice to see you. I uh, I Good was to see you. I was very uh, uh, oddly moved uh, when you said hi to me at the uh, pr- at the screening the other day because <laughs> I was just going to the well, bathroom. It's good to see you. Yes, you were going to the bathroom. It's better to do it outside the bathroom than in the bathroom, which seems a little odd at times. Yeah, well, I, you didn't follow me in, and I appreciate that. But no, no. But no. but there was a moment where you're just like, "Hey, Mark, how you doing?" And I'm like, uh, a couple of things happened in that moment. Uh, I was like, "How does how's George Clooney know who I am?" <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been I've been a fan for a long time. I remember. I mean, you must have done I don't know how many episodes of Conan. Yes. Um, and I always loved your stand-up and thought it was really great. And I've listened to your podcast for years. Oh. Um, and I, I just think, you know, I, I actually, one of those people who really sort of lives and dies by podcasts. I have about five or six that I listen to all the time. Oh, really? Um, so so I've listened to your podcast. Okay. And uh, and also, you know, I, you know, I sort of followed all of the difficulties you had um, yeah. last year. Yeah. Uh, and... I felt, uh, um, you know, very keenly aware of uh, how difficult that situation was for you and, and how hard that was. And uh, and so, you know, when I saw you, I just, you know, felt like I, I suppose I felt like I knew you better than I do. 
Well, I, you might, uh, but it did it did resonate. There was a moment there where I knew exactly what you were talking about, and uh, and I, I was maybe seconds away of uh, just you know tearing up and crying in front of you, uh, you know, at the screening. <laughs> like, as you were walking in, I doubt that that would have been the greatest moment for you. How you doing, Mark? Not that great, man. Can you hang out a second? That's so good. <laughs> Yeah, you know those those people when you ask them how they're doing and they actually go into long explanations yeah, of yeah, how they're yeah. actually doing that yeah. you really don't want to know. Yeah, yeah. Just okay. Just yeah. say okay. Okay and we'll move on. Yeah, just say I'm I'm good, man. Yeah, I'm, and then and walk. I'm dealing. I think that's what I said to you. How you doing? Yeah. Dealing. And then I yeah. said I'm looking forward to the movie. You said it's light. And I said I could use light. And you said I bet you yeah. could. Yeah. <laughs> well, because you know what, you know, how you doing? Well, I'm giving up drugs and my parents are, you know, assholes. And my, I mean, you know, you're like, I wow. just really need something simple. <laughs> yeah, you have watched my act. <laughs> but, but it's like the, I, when I saw the movie, I like I have questions about well I have other questions but let's just start with this when you direct I mean you're making very specific choices about you know what you want to direct and they're all very different yeah so when you do this after the 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 one where you have a beard and is you know yeah. the spoiler is right at the beginning there's no avoiding right. the end of the world <laughs> exactly so now we're just like some kid in the 60s or the 70s whenever it was. <laughs> So how do you, yeah, seven. What? why do you choose, like, let's start at the beginning. So Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, what, you just got a kick out of that book? You like Sam? You like uh, Chuck? What is it? It was a script I'd been kicking around for a long time. It was at Warner Brothers. Yeah. And Warner Brothers was using it as bait to bring in big directors to do other projects because they were never going to make the movie. It was pretty dark. <laughs> the script was even darker than sort of what we did. There was like dancing aborted fetuses and all kinds of crazy stuff. Charlie Kaufman wrote the screenplay. And uh, and I just finished doing Oceans at Warner Brothers. and The first one? Yeah, the first one. Yeah. And I knew they were going to get that. They were trying to get that movie out. They got it over to Miramax. Um, and so I just, I called up Soderbergh, who was my partner. And I just said, you know, if I was ever going to direct anything, this is a really good script. And I, you know, having grown up around live television and understanding it really well, my father has had a variety show before he was a news anchor. And, you know, we would see the sets change from the Nick Clooney show, which was a talk show, like the Michael Douglas show. And then suddenly you'd lift up the set and underneath it'd be a bowling alley and it'd be the 3.30 bowling show. Wait, 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 so where, what town was that in? That was in the mid 70s, early 70s. But where, where was that? Oh, then Cincinnati, Ohio. Nick Clooney show in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Before he did the news. I remember there was a, I saw when I was a kid, I saw Jay Leno on, I think, Mike Douglas. And, oh, uh, you know, and he was just doing his bit and he made he made a comment that reminded me that because after they were going to go to commercial and Jay said, does the chair fold up into the wall now or do I stay? <laughs> it's really true because, you know, you only have usually two sort of stages and they're not big like a sound stage, yeah. you know, and this is in Cincinnati. So it's a fairly decent sized market. But they had, you know, the 330 money movie, Bowling for Dollars, yeah. the news and all of those things, like the bowling alley would go through two sets, yeah. you know, and, yeah, and yeah. underneath, on top of it, you put the newsroom. Right. The weird thing about local television, there's always some sorted, uh, you know, kind of weird stories about the personalities. I'm not, I'm assuming it's not your father. But yeah. there, there's always, I remember when, like, that some something horrible happened to the dialing for dollars guy in Albuquerque. I can't remember what it I'm was. Sure. But he did something bad. 
Well, they always there's always a couple of them. You know, we had a guy who did a morning show. Yeah. It was just when the miniskirts came in in the 60s, late 60s. And he did a morning show where he took a pair of binoculars and he made all the girls in the miniskirts sit in the front row and would look sort of up their dresses. And that was his whole act in the morning. <laughs> he had these things called knee ticklers that he would give with he's, his name on he's, he's Paul do, Dixon. He's doing it right in front of everybody. You know, he's not oh. like that was the gimmick. That was the bit. And, yeah, and he's like, yeah. he's getting away with it. And there were all those characters that you never, you always were suspicious of who were like ran the kids show. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, who you knew hated kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there a clown? No, we had Uncle Al, who was a nice guy. Uncle yeah. Al, the kiddies pal. Yeah. And we had uh, Skipper Isle, yeah. who was also, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he was like the, the 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 budget version of Captain Kangaroo. Right. Sort of <laughs> Those guys. Uh, and I knew Skipper Riley, Glenn Riley was a funny guy and he was a, you know, an old Marine and he kind of hated kids, but he got a gig. Yeah. Being, you know, the kids show guy, which always makes me laugh. It's a little like a thousand clowns. Sure. Know? And this is your dad's world. Oh, yeah. Sure. And he did he did variety shows. He did talk shows. Did, was he ever? Yeah, he did all of that. He, he had a he would sing on the show. And uh, uh, it's funny because he started out in news and pretty quickly after the show uh, was canceled after about five or six years. Um, and he had a band, Jerry Conrad's Rhythm and Brass. And so you grew uh, up around all these guys. Sure, I mean, I grew up around. You know, I got to see some really. You know, Rosemary was a big singer. I didn't get to see her all that often, but my aunt Rosemary was a big singer. Yeah, huge. Yeah. I mean, well, by the time I was, you know, twenty-one, I was on the road with them. I was driving her. I was driving <laughs> Helen O'Connell and Margaret Whiting and Kay Ballard and Kay Star and I mean, some crazy. You know, Martha Ray. Oh, my God. We'd get Martha Ray. Literally, I'm driving her from a show. Rosemary was doing this show called Four Girls Four, which was usually four big, famous female singers from the 50s, usually. And you're doing what? Are you doing prescription, uh, subscription theaters or what? Well, it was, no, it was big, huge oh, yeah. venues. You know, it was like, uh, um, you know, it'd be Harris and Reno. Oh, okay, okay, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she would be playing. It'd be like Billy Mays Orchestra, huge orchestra. Yeah, yeah. And big bands and... You know, and I'd stand backstage with Helen O'Connell with a tall glass of vodka. And Helen yeah. is maybe five foot. Yeah, I mean, you know, she's not five, but like four foot nine. Yeah. Probably weighs 80 pounds. Yeah. There's a tall glass of warm Smirnoff. <laughs> and they'd be playing the overture. Ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. You know, from uh, Tahoe in, you know, yeah. uh, Harris in Tahoe. Yeah. It was Helen O'Connell. And, she, and just before they play the that, 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 that. And she'd point at me. Yeah. And I'd hand her this tall glass and she'd down it. Whoa. And then she'd walk on stage going, Tangerine does a lady proud. And it was fantastic. It's the best. And then I would have to drive them home to the hotel. And Martha wouldn't change out of her dress. She'd be wearing that sequins dress you wear on stage, you know? And she's in the back with my Aunt Rosemary. They're drinking pretty good. And Martha's like, pull over. I got to take a piss. <laughs> I'm like, I'm 21. And she literally hikes up her dress and puts one leg out of the back seat of the car. There's peeing on the side of the freeway. And my Aunt Rosemary goes, Georgie, don't turn around. You learned too much about the aging process. <laughs> but they were fun, man. I got a, I had a really interesting introduction into, you know, a very different world than I'd grown up. I'd grown up living across the river in Kentucky cutting tobacco for a living and shit. So suddenly I got to see, you know, a very interesting, fun, exciting world. That's the, uh, but that part of show business is really the greatest. Like the, oh, yeah. 
Because like what you're saying in in relation to the movie and in relation to the way you grew up is like I notice that all the time when I'm about to go on stage when you got to walk through the kitchen to get to the stage yeah. like that moment where it, it's all about backstage. I mean that is yeah. that's like show business. You get out there. Oh my god! You'd get out there and do your bit. That's your bit. But like it's really it's kind of fascinating that moment between yeah. off stage and on stage. It's amazing. Well, I remember I remember seeing. Um, God, this is a long time ago. There's a there was a director directed South Pacific and films like that named Josh Logan. Yeah, really talented guy, and he's best friends with Henry Fonda and um, Jimmy Stewart. They were absolutely best friends from school. Yeah, and they took pictures together every year in 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 uh, straw hats. Really funny guys. And Josh, my cousin Miguel, was married to his daughter Harrigan uh, at the time, and I was at a thing at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and Jimmy Stewart's going to introduce Josh Logan. And Josh is backstage and I'm backstage. Yeah. And Josh is, and I'm, you know, I'm like, I don't know, 25 years old and trying to get a job. And, um, but I was there with my family because Miguel had just married into this family. And Josh is back there and he's very old and in a wheelchair and he's completely checked out. He's yeah. sitting slumped in a wheelchair back yeah. behind the curtain, waiting for the curtain to open. And it's just like you're watching a dead man in a chair. Yeah, sure. You know? <laughs> And Jimmy comes out and goes, oh, yo, here's my buddy, you know, the greatest director, one of the greatest writer, one of the most talented guys, this is Josh Logan. And boom, he pops up out of the chair. He comes out on stage. Rap, 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 rap. He does like a five-minute great funny routine. Thank you and good night. He goes back and sits down, boom, back <laughs> to just dead. That's it. The, the adrenaline, I actually have a theory that, with the exception of like Dick Sean, you know, that you can't really die if you're on stage. Right, right, because you know, you're so jacked. You can live forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it is an eternal moment, but you didn't do, well, like, so go back, going back to that script. So you got this Charlie Kaufman script of a very odd movie. Yeah. Now, did you, Yeah. I mean, what yeah. do you make of that, man? Did you talk to Chuck? Sure, yeah, I spent a lot of time with now, him. Now, was this- A lot, a lot, a lot of time with With Chuck Barris. Now, was I, that- I know, I know, I know what Chuck thought, which is, you know, he woke up one morning, you know, he was like just this entertainer guy yeah. who was doing like the dating game and shit like that. And he was getting along fine, making a lot of money, having a good time, getting laid. You know, everything for him was like about that. Yeah. And then he did the gong show and he starred in it, which he hadn't done in the other ones. And suddenly people recognized him and they they put him alongside the words, you know, the downfall of civilization. Oh, right. You know? Right. The gong show. And he woke up one day and realized he was suddenly a joke. He was the joke. Yeah. So he would go around to parties and everything saying, well, if you knew what I really did, which is all <laughs> bullshit. <of course. laughs> and, you know, you can never verify anybody who's actually in the CIA. Sure. So he just goes, check it out. And yeah. So he wrote a book about it called The Unauthorized Autobiography, which yeah, yeah. cracks me up. And, <laughs> and that was it. It was great. And, and you know, we wanted to deal with it as if it were true, because I think that's funnier. And, um, you know, it was he's he was a really wonderfully sweet man. And I really enjoyed my time with him. He was fun. So that was the so the intent was sort of a, a dip back into your past and this curious story. And, and Charlie Kaufman's a genius. Well, I mean, think about it this way. And I could ask this of you yeah. as well. You, you know, your career has been many things, you know, right. You've done a lot of different things. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I have and, not been George well, Clooney. I have not. not. Well, <laughs> it might not be as fun as you think. But here's the interesting thing about it is. Yeah. Um, you know, you get to a point in your career where you're looking down and you think, well, I don't know 
what the long game is here. I don't know. Do I want to worry about when I'm 60 years old, what some casting director thinks about me as an actor? Yeah. I wanted other options. And so I knew I've been writing for a long time. So I wanted to continue writing. I, uh, I produced a few things, but I wanted to do it on a more realistic scale, which meant getting in and actually being involved in producing. And I wanted to direct because I just wanted to have some control over my life besides just, Oh, he's he looks a lot older now up close. Oh, so that was a concern. Like, it's not like in 2002, you were like, yeah, I'm really scrambling for the roles. No, no, no. It wasn't that. <laughs> yeah, it was like, this is the moment. Like in 2002, shit's going pretty good for me. You know, I, Oceans had just come out. Life was going pretty well. Yeah. And we were able to force the studio uh, Warner Brothers to do films they didn't want to do like Three Kings and um, Syriana and films that don't fit into a, a, a studio, you know, kind of thing. So we were really, I was in a really good spot. Stoderberg and I were. And I knew that, that this was a time for, for me to try to make a move. Right. You know? He was your production partner at the time? Yeah, he and I were, after we did Out of Sight together in 98, we uh, decided that we'd try a partnership for five years. And it worked good? And we stuck to it. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, you know, we did Oceans and we did did some really interesting films. Well, Three Kings, like I believe, for me, you're involved in like a few masterpieces for me. Yeah, I've gotten lucky. Yeah? Well, I mean, I like Three Kings to me is like uh, one of the one of the best movies of all time. It's a really good smart movie. It's really smart. Holds up. Oh yeah, you had a part in pushing that through? Sure. I mean, that was a hard film because the studio didn't want to make it. Really? You, you know, yeah, they they you know, if you look at what the studio was making at the time, what Warner Brothers was making at the time, and you know, it wasn't a hit, by the way. Um, but what they were making, they weren't making films. Nobody was taking movies about the, you know, the rise of the Republican Guard taking on, you know, the Shia. And, but it I was mean, a, it was a it was a satire. I mean, really, yeah. in some ways, it was, it was a comedy. Was it was, yeah, right. And and I they they probably misunderstood that. Well, I think <laughs> I I remember at the at the uh, premiere. There was a, a lot of uh, hemming and hawing by the studio of how violent it was if it was supposed to be a satire and how um, I mean, now you look at the squid game and you think, oh, well, none of that matters anymore. But it was a big deal at the time. I got to watch that squid game, huh? You know, I just finished it last night watching all of it. It's interesting. It's uh, it's actually very disturbing in a lot of ways, really disturbing. It's truly the most violent thing I've ever seen. Um, They're really I, selling this. I get it. I really yeah. get it. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, it's really good filmmaking and it's really good storytelling. Yeah. I'm not sure it's the, I'm not sure it's for everyone. You know, there's yeah. a lot of headshots. There must be, yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, there must be 200 headshots and that's hard to watch, you know? Yeah. Especially after all this shit we've been seeing for, with the Alec Baldwin stuff. It's, you know. Oh my God. What a terrible situation. Did you talk to him? No, I don't know Alec that well. I have to say, Uh-oh. you know, I'm watching the news this morning and they're, you know, they're, they've got the bad guy, which is going to be the first AD, which I'm, you know, look, he may be a dick. I don't know the guy at all. But, um, but you know, I've been on sets for 40 years and yeah. the person that hands you the gun, the person that is responsible for the gun is either the prop person or the armor, period. Yeah. And, yeah. The, you know, and this is one of those things. I was friends with an actor named John Eric Hexham who accidentally pulled a gun up with blanket and put it to his head and died from the concussion. And then I was good friends, really good friends with Brandon Lee. And that was a series of 
stupid things that happen. When I yeah. say stupid, I mean, you know, low budget film. I think they were in North Carolina. You know, my cousin Miguel was going to be his best man the next week at their wedding. You know, Miguel Ferrar. Is yeah, that Miguel, who that is? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and Brandon and I played ball and hung out at the Hollywood Y three days a week. We were buddies. And, you know, this was his big break. And the first unit, low budget, probably. I don't remember if the guy was even a union prop guy. Yeah. Sent it down to a second unit, a different group of shooting, and they wanted to use the same gun. So they sent the gun down there. The It was the guy's girlfriend that was the prop assistant. They didn't have dummy bullets, so they made them by taking the gunpowder out and putting the bullet back in. They did a close-up of the cylinder turning with the bullets going yeah. around. She takes out the, the bullets out of the cylinder, and one of the shells, one of the bullets, had lodged in the barrel of the gun. And right. then they sent it back up to the first unit. No one checks the barrel. No one notices that of the six shells, one of them is missing the bullet and hands it to the first unit. They put a full load in it. The actor, which you never do with a full load, points it directly at Brandon and pulls the trigger. And it's like getting shot with a, you know, with a normal bullet and killed him, you know, and, and this one you look at, and you say, now we're seeing, so it was dummy bullets. This is the problem right now. Every single time I'm handed a gun on a set, every time, Mark, they hand me a gun. I look at it. I open it. I show it to the person I'm pointing it to. We show it to the crew. Every yeah. single take, you hand it back to the armor when you're done. You do it again. And part of it is because of what happened to Brandon. Right. Everyone does it. Everybody knows. And maybe Alec did that. I Hopefully, he did do that. But the problem is dummies are tricky because they look like real bullets. They've got a little tiny hole in the back that somebody's taken all the gunpowder out. And why, for the life of me, this low-budget film with producers who haven't produced anything w wouldn't have hired for the armor someone with experience? With that many guns. With that many guns. And maybe they weren't even using that gun to do target practice, but they had live ammo with dummies in her pack. And that is insane. It's insane. Yeah. It's infuriating. And so it comes down to... You know, um, uh, we need to be better at making sure that the heads of our department are still like we've just gone through with IATSE. We have to make sure that they're experienced and know what they're doing, um, because this is I, I, I've just never, you know, it's just infuriating. I mean, every time I yeah. get handed a six gun, you point it at the ground, and you fire six, you squeeze it six times, you know. Oh, you do. It's just insane. Yeah, yeah, always. Uh, no, it's it was it was just devastating and horrendous. I've been on sets like you know, obviously not as much, but every time a a gun comes, it's sort of like everybody stop, everybody Everything. gather round. This is the gun, and the first AD says, "Okay, they're going to be a half load," and you never need a full load in a revolver. The only reason Shit. you need a full load is in a is in a gun that has to to, to recoil. But yeah. again, you know, why are you even? I mean. All of this. First of all, I've never heard the term "cold gun." They said, "Oh, the, the, the second, uh, the first AD said cold gun." I've never heard that term. The, literally, that's they're just talking about stuff I've never heard of. You know, there is yeah, a, and you and and you would know. Yeah, it's just infuriating. <laughs> it's infuriating that that you get to this place where the places that you're skimping on. Now, listen again. I want to say I don't believe there's any intent by anybody yeah. to do anything sure. wrong. It's a terrible right. accident, but. A 24-year-old person uh, shouldn't 
probably with that little experience shouldn't be heading up a department with the with the guns and bullets on it well and also they had the issue where there was a walkout the conditions were bad they had yeah. scabs or you know yeah. non-union people there i mean you know at the very least this is going to change some union rules in new mexico well it should change a lot it should but it should also you know after brandon died it really became a very clear thing of open the gun look down the barrel look look in the uh, uh, the cylinder make sure yeah. It's harder with dummy bullets, I have to say, because you can if I if you stuck six dummy bullets in your hand, you would yeah. think they're real bullets. Sure. You know, and guns are, you know, their guns are creepy. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got a gun around. It's going to be a gun. Yeah. And you don't need that anymore with a revolver. You really don't need it. You know, it's hard because when you when, when you're shooting a gun that has to recoil, you need it to not get locked open. But um, but it, it just really is. You know, it's a series of tragedies, but also uh, a lot of mistakes, a a lot of, you know, a lot of stupid mistakes. Yeah. Are you a gun person? I'm not actually. I'm not a gun person. Did you did you have to do it at some point to to learn how to be sure when we did three kings, we had to go out and learn how to, you know, shoot AK-47s. And, you know, (laughs) you know, we all we did all of that stuff. Um, And listen, as a kid. You know, I mean, we would go to the westerns and sit in the. You know, we'd wear the you know six guns with the with sure. caps in it. And during the day, you know, my mom would drop us off at the theater. We'd sit there and we'd watch cowboy and Indian movies and pull out the guns and shoot them at the screen. Sure, you know, of course. I loved it. But then Bobby Kennedy was shot. I think twenty four days after Martin Luther King was shot. Not long after, you know, all the other tragedies that had happened in that moment. And my dad was doing this variety show and. uh and I went in and got all my toy guns. I was eight, gave them to my dad and said, I don't want to play with them anymore. And he went on the show and he showed him. Oh, yeah. I sort of meant I didn't want to play with them right now. He, he said, my son will never play with toy guns again. And I was like, what? But the truth was that became sort of the, you know, the go-to for me. It seems like a, a pretty dangerous uh, world, a handgun, you know. Oh yeah, uh, well that's funny that he decided to make a message out of it. That <laughs> yeah, that was his yeah. his moment. Well, you know, it was a good time to do it with good night and good luck. Was that? Did you have your father in mind with that as well? Yeah, I was. You know, I'd been I'd been getting beaten up pretty good because I was against the war. Now, of course, it's the you know the popular thing to say. Oh yeah, we were against the war, but at the time, you know, they protested a movie a movie premiere that I had, and um, and Bill O'Reilly did a half an hour show on why my career was over uh, because uh, because I was against America because it was framed oh, yeah. as you're either with us or with the enemy. It wasn't even with us or against us. Um, and so it was a, you know, there were only a few of us at that moment that were very vocal. I remember going to a, a premiere and this acolyte of Bill O'Reilly was on the red carpet and they said, we saw a picture of your house that has a a, a, a peace flag hanging over it. He goes, yeah, what are you yeah. trying to say? And I said, peace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So controversial, you know. So yeah. I, I was mad about the, the job that the press was doing. They had all been embedded, which is a really bad idea, embedded yeah. with, uh, with the uh, – you're supposed to be uh, you know, a neutral observer. I was concerned with the lead up of the war that no one asked any tough questions in journalism. And, you know, they, they all talk about it now and it, they look back at it as their issues as well. There was very few tough questions asked. It was, you know, they didn't want to be on the wrong side of history. And so 
Uh, I wrote Good Night and Good Luck because I was looking for another re- another time in history where uh, we needed the fourth estate when the other three estates, when the executive branch and the, you know, when when everyone else fails, the judicial branch and the legislative branch, when they all fail, you need the fourth estate to pick it up. So you were always sort of like uh, on this beat. You were always sort of a, a, an activist and outspoken about. I mean, well, there's how, many things now. How old are you, Mark? Fifty-eight. I just turned fifty-eight. I just turned sixty. So we're about the same age. Same. Yeah. So so you know, here's the thing: if you grew up as a child of the '60s and early '70s and aren't part of some movements. I mean, yeah. that was all, it was everything. It was, you know, there was the women's rights. It was the civil rights. It was the anti-Vietnam. There was so many versions of sure. things to actually actively be involved in as my yes. parents were that, you know, I was raised on that. It would be embarrassed. I'd be so embarrassed if I had, if, if my kids in 20 years or four now, you know, look back at this moment in time and said, you know, you were okay with this and you didn't stand up and say something. I'd be, I'd be humiliated by that. Yeah. Right. Right. Where were you when yeah. that happened? Yeah. yeah. Did you, would, was it just take a paycheck? What did you do? Yeah. You know? Well, no, I mean, but you've never done that. So like, you know, there's plenty of evidence that you annoyed all the right people. Well, I, honestly, if you can't, you know, Again, my father's one mantra, you know, everybody has their thing. Be, you know, treat people like you treat yourself, all that stuff. My dad only had one thing when we were growing up, which was to always challenge anyone in power and always defend anyone without power. And if you do that in life, you win. And, and, you know, it was unfortunate at times, you know, because there were plenty of times where you're doing it when it's, it's no fun. And, and you never win those, you know, you just get thumped. But it, but it must be great that you're at you know in a in a position now where you know you you are who you are you have what you have no one's going to take it away from you and you have your beliefs and you have the ability to support and uh, actively uh, speak out about things and and it's not going to be a tremendous threat to you other than annoyance. No, but here's the other part of it because you know somewhere along the way you, you do, even though you, I'm an actor you do have to take yourself out of it and realize that the things that you're working towards on this long arc of, of history bending towards justice, you know, all the things you're working towards, like the, the, the violence in Sudan, which I was very much, you know, have, and continue to be very deeply involved in. Um, for the most part, we fail, you know, we're failing and we fail and we fail and we fail until we don't. And, and so the, the truth of the matter is I've had to look at the idea of failure very differently as not an end, but as a part of the process to getting to success. Was that a hard thing? Yeah. I mean, it is because you fail in everything you do. And if you don't fail, you're, you're not doing it right. And, and also with the things that you're active in, you know, failure could mean lives are lost. It can mean that, you know, sure. entire, you know, uh, histories are changed. But the option is to do nothing and not be involved and not try to fight for those things. And every once in a while, like for instance, you know, been fighting for a long time in the, you know, the, for all the stuff that went on in Darfur and still yeah. fighting in South Sudan. And now uh, Sudan is again, you know, um, uh, caught fire in the last few days. Um, but there is some hope, you know, my wife has actually got one of the, one of the perpetrators of the genocide, uh, you know, in the docket and she's going to be, you know, uh, doing her best to, to, 
you know, to bring him to justice. Nail him. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, so um, where I've been pushing and failing, you know, I can see at the other end, there's there's that tiny bend towards justice. Well, well, her perspective must be amazing that, you know, like, I mean, you've been with her for a bit now, but I mean, you know, now you can really see the possibility of prosecution and, and, and how actual justice can be meted out, uh, without it being some sort of vague idea. That's right. Because, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't freeze people's assets. You know, that's, I have to, I have to lobby the Treasury Department to do that against these sort of war criminals who are hiding right. their money in American and British banks. Um, there's a lot of stuff I can't do, but uh, there's a lot of stuff my wife in the, you know, as a, you know, <laughs> yes. in the legal department can actually get done. So it's, it's amazing. So the advocacy can only go so far and then suddenly it has to be picked up by real, you know, the people who do the real work. And, you know, and my wife is one of them. So. Like you went, you went a long, a long time without kids. Like I'm still doing it. I got no kids. You got no kids? No, I got no Come kids. Come on, man. Jump in the Wait, water. Oh, you, it's fine. You're going to say that? You're going to say that? <laughs> Listen, I, I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to have kids. And then this extraordinary human being walked into my life. And I just, I fell madly in love. And I knew from the minute I met her that everything was going to be different. I didn't know I'd have twins. There is that moment when you go to the doctor and, you know, they pull out this piece of paper, which is a, you know, a sonar or something. Or like, it's not sonar or whatever the hell it is. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, uh, uh, sonogram. Uh, sonogram. And they like go, here. And uh, and you go, it's a baby boy. And I'm like, baby boy, fantastic. And then they said, and the other one is a girl. And I was like, oh, shit. Wow, yeah. Her sister has twins. And I was gobsmacked because I wasn't. Yeah. I was kind of up for one, you know. Oh, like, come I, on. I, you love it. You love it. Now. Oh, I love it now. I love and and thank God they have each other during the pandemic. Yeah. They were together. Yeah. And- yeah, it's like kittens. You want to have two. Well, you got a lot of cats, right? <laughs> two. I got two. I got two. I oh. a couple of them went. So wait, so you so you know, you had a pretty good run in life. Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of uh relationships and yes. and fun. Yeah. So this was so this was some undeniable feeling. It was nothing you'd ever experienced before. Nothing I've ever experienced before, by far. I mean, you know, um, yes, there was literally the first moment I met her. I thought, well, this is the most extraordinary, you know, smart, brilliant, beautiful woman I'd ever met. And you know, and then I thought, why can't I find somebody like that? And then, <laughs> and that we and we just met as friends. And then a few months later, yeah. I was in London. Yeah. Doing uh, doing the score for a movie, and I brought her over to Abbey Road. She came from a a meeting at the Muslim Brotherhood. <laughs> she was trying to like solve a problem there, and I brought her to Abbey Road, where there's a huge 150 piece orchestra. And I thought if you can't impress anybody here, then you can't impress anybody. The idea of George Clooney going, "Why can't I meet a nice?" <laughs> that, hey, listen, that, I, uh... I I went out with a lot of really nice. Uh, Sure. Smart, talented people. It's just, you know, every once in a while there's somebody that's specifically d- d- for you. And, you know, and I feel like I'm all and I feel that way. And the kid thing, you know, you was it a discussion or did you just like, I'm in? Oh, no, it was a discussion because she we never discussed it. We didn't discuss getting married. I just dropped it on her and it was like a surprise. Yeah. So we'd been married for about a year and we were at a friend's house. 
And they had a kid there, which was, you know, loud and obnoxious. And I was like, oh, shit. And we went outside for a walk. <laughs> yeah. And the mom said, so, and she'd never thought about it really. And she, then she said, so we, we're awfully lucky in life. And I said, yeah, we are. We're lucky we found each other. And said, yes. And she said, <laughs> yeah. seems like that luck should be shared with some other, you know, folks. Yeah. And I thought about it for, a, I don't know, maybe a minute we, we of silence. The two of us sat there. I don't think either of us had made a decision. And then I just said, well, I'm in if you're in. And she said, I, I think we should try. And so it, it was a, you know, it was, I have to say it was very emotional because I really was convinced that that wasn't my lot in life and, yeah. and was comfortable with that. Yeah, and, I'm comfortable with it. Yeah, you should be. And, and by the way, that's how the world works, right? You got to be. Yeah. But I have to say, um, you know, they cut Alexander every morning, eight in the morning, he bangs on the, my bedroom door, our bedroom door. Yeah. And I go, who is it? And he goes, it is I, Alexander Clooney. And then I open up the door and he comes running in and I laugh out loud, you know, and they every make time. me laugh. Yeah. I laugh every day. It's sweet. And they really are funny kids. It's a, and actually, you know, you know, despite whatever anyone thinks or maybe what you even think is a good time in your life to do it. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I'm. Again, the, the hard part is being 60 and just the, the, the sheer like running around of it. But, sure. you know, my mom, you know, my, my mom had two kids by the time she was 19 and they yeah. had no money. You know, my folks were poor. So, um, you know, it was her alone with two kids and my dad going to work every day. And, you know, I didn't have any of that. You know, I had a much easier run. Yeah. And also, like, it, it seems like there's you, you're making, you know, different decisions career-wise it doesn't seem like you're acting as much i don't know what you're doing down there yeah yeah not as much you know it's interesting too is i'm really aware of a couple of things which is i'm aware of the danger of celebrity with kids and i'm aware of the danger of having means with kids you know because we didn't my mom made my clothes for me you know and we were you know we moved like my dad said we moved when the rent was due and we moved a lot and uh and so I was, but I learned to be scrappy because of that. I mean, you right. can put me in any right. situation, I can survive, you know, and, uh, I could, you know, change a fan belt on the car or fix a motorcycle. I can, I can survive anything, you know? Yeah. And I have to make sure that that's something that our kids get, you know? Yeah. That's important to me. You know? Well, yeah. When they get old enough, you leave them out in the desert and you yeah, say, just good luck. Them yeah. yeah. Give them like a, two sticks. <laughs> Yeah, and a some, broken car. We have some wood shavings car. and a flint. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. I mean, I, I get, I, I under, I get it. You know, I, I mean, I. But are you one of those people now that that honestly believes, like, oh, dude, it, I, I had no idea what an amazing thing that like, changed um, my. Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm every bit. <laughs> I, I literally, I'm so ashamed to admit that I'm the guy that yeah. you're just about to make fun of. Um, I literally am this guy who like they come in the room and they have opinions and they're funny and they pull pranks on me. And I just look at them thinking, you know, I I couldn't be happier and I couldn't be, you know, more surprised at how happy I am. So, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very odd thing, I will say. Well, let's talk about uh, like like I talk about you more than I should probably. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, yeah, on the show, <laughs> because I'm I'm a big I'm a big supporter of uh, of uh, the Clooney uh, uh, thing, in the sense that like I believe, 
and I'm sure you're aware of it to a degree that, you know, you are uh, an old school movie star in a world where that doesn't really exist uh, anymore. That, you know, you, you, you kind of uh, have a, a sort of global presence and a, and, a, and a sort of celebrity presence that is, you know, uh, it's almost, you've been compared to other people before, but I don't, like, I try to figure it out as an actor because, like, lately, just whatever your celebrity is, like, I watch the movies and I'm like, there's, you're, you're a great actor, but you're essentially Clooney. Like, you yeah. don't lose the Clooneyism. Right. Right. I, I mean, maybe you do a little bit, but but you know what I'm saying. I do. That, that I know what some, you're saying, sure. Some element of being a movie star is that, you know, you are consistently yourself. Yeah. So, you know, there's part of you that's always out there. And, you know, obviously you have a, a tremendous amount of range, serious, killing people, making people laugh, all that. And you're a great actor. But, I mean, was this, is it a design? Do you, do you manage your, your movie starness? No, no, I don't. I, you know, um, it's an interesting thing. You know, there were... When I was a kid and you watched movies, there were kind of two ways of going as an actor. There was the Spencer Tracy part where it's Spencer Tracy's always Spencer Tracy. Right. And, you know, and he's loved, you know, I love Spencer Tracy and everything he does. And then there was the sort of Laurence Olivier who sort of fell into, became these roles and you never right. really attached to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think probably where I am in my career is by, from my lack of ability in some things, you know, my inability to, to, to uh, fully meld into other things, you know, uh, there, there's Are you hard on yourself about that? Do you, I mean, no. do you think, I mean, yeah. as an actor, do you have moments where you're like, why can I just learn the accent? You know? Well, no, but I do, you know, <laughs> I, I, I try to tend to go where I feel I, listen, I'm always trying to push. I'm always trying to do stuff that I'm uncomfortable with like what well give me an example of something you were uncomfortable with well everything i direct is a complete okay. de departure from the last thing i did specifically sure. yeah we were just that's what we were talking about because you wanted to take the chances and and you know i'm very lucky because there aren't many actors that are allowed to do drama and comedy and i've been lucky enough to be allowed to do that um possibly good at it well, possibly because of my lack of massive success at either one of them. It's always been kind of in a in a good sort of uh, singles and doubles, you know. No, that's not that's not true though. That I mean, you're, you're no, you're being you're being humble. Yeah, I mean, you're very good at comedy, and you're good at at, at comedy in in a way where you don't have to where you play it straight. I mean, well, all those all the Coen brothers. I mean, Hail Caesar's a fucking masterpiece, and you're hilarious. That that movie like, cracked I, me up. You know, the funny one was. Oh, brother, the first day of shooting, oh, brother, which is my first film with the Coens, I was nervous because those guys are maestros, you know, right, and I'd right. never done anything like that. And, you know, and, and so the first day of shooting is a scene with John Goodman and, and Tim Blake Nelson where I get hit in the head with a branch, you know, and uh, and I'm playing, you know, I'm the dumbest guy on earth, you know, and I'm just Everett McGill and I'm playing him, like, you know, and I do one take and I don't know how big it should be. I don't know where I fit in the Cohen world, you know. Yeah. And then Joel comes over and he goes, oh, yeah, that's great. Let's do one more take. Uh, just remember that you're the smartest guy in every room you walk into. And that was it. That's the only direction basically he gave me. And I was like, oh, fuck, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah. And then everything you do is like, well, apparently you folks don't understand what you And, you know, I'm right. a damn pattern for me. Everything yeah. becomes simple. It's, that's called a really good director helping you. 
But yeah. so they're, you know, they have very simple, clean uh, ways of explaining characters so that it makes it more fun to do, you know, easy to do. So when you look back at the decisions you've made, well, I mean, well, as a as a director, I mean, you know, Leatherheads, I mean, where'd that come from? Well, that was interesting. I really liked the project. It was a project that Soderbergh wanted to do a long time earlier. And we sort of tried to figure out a way to 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 make it work. That was a big swing on my part. I wanted it to be, um, you know, old fashioned slapstick kind of way right. out there comedy. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. Um, that's my fault. You know, when I go back to the idea of failing or not, that's the one, you know, there are other ones that people uh, ha- that haven't been critically as well received as other ones I've done, but I don't care about that. I did what I wanted and, and I'm happy. I missed uh, on a few things in Leatherheads and I'm not, I couldn't, I can explain some of the camera work that I did wrong, but I think I also uh, I was aiming for something that I think I wasn't uh, – I, I think I didn't do a very good job of uh, achieving on that. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I like about it. John Krasinski's fantastic and Renee's great. And it's just that, you know, I, I think I sort of, you know, dropped the ball on something. Well, do but so like now do you like figure do – you, do you troubleshoot that in your brain and go like this is what happened and you this can't, is why? I mean you can't go backwards that way. No, of course. You, you but do I mean have moving to, forward. You do have to look at things – realistically i mean you know i you have to look at things that are successful and things that aren't and go okay why isn't that successful sometimes it isn't you right there is mm-hmm. some i it, you know you are able to pass some blame off going, sure, oh, this sure. is a time or uh, yeah. because you know out of sight wasn't a hit uh three kings wasn't a hit um oh brother where art thou wasn't a hit at first um so it, there is there is something about you know i, I remember we saw, i saw a review for oh brother in Entertainment Weekly, where they gave it an F and said it's the worst film of the century. Wow. <laughs> and you just go, okay, well, then that's just what it's going to be. I saw a review for uh, Midnight Sky where it said tequila salesman still wants to direct. And you go, well, it's got nothing to do with the work. You wow. Know? So sometimes you just take it and you just go, all right. But you do have to learn from things you're not doing well. So as you move through these, like I thought The Ides of March was a good movie. I enjoyed I was really it. I that. Yeah, I was really proud of that. Listen, that's where you got like Philip Seymour Hoffman and Paul Giamatti just yeah. swinging for the fences. And yeah, and it was a screenplay I was really proud of because I worked really hard on it and um, and, you know, put together one scene in particular in a with Ryan Gosling and myself in a kitchen that I'll I will forever be very proud of because it was a it's a really dark, dark, dark scene. And, you know, I also like the idea that I was going to be able to write speeches that politically I believed in. And the only way I was going to get away with it was by making myself the bad guy, you know? <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> but it's, but it's like, cause it's one of those grown up movies. You don't see like smart political dramas anymore. No, you don't see no. grown up movies in general anymore. No. And, uh, you know, I think that, well, like, okay, well, I guess we'll have to talk about it. So, you know, Michael Clayton is a movie I watch obsessively. It's a good movie. I don't shut up about it, and I Ugh. watch it probably, probably five, six times a year. It's a good film. It's a great movie. Yeah. Now, yeah. let's talk about going back to this idea of the type of, of you know Spencer Tracy versus Lawrence Olivier. Now, as a guy who knows who you are and what you do, do you ever get on a set and and are intimidated by other actors? Sure. 
I'm always intimidated by other actors. Um, but I, but I find that to be exciting. You know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm about, I'm in Australia right now. I'm about to work with Julia Roberts, who I've done, you know, countless things with. Yeah. And I'm always excited to see what she's going to do and how she's going to do it and what her thoughts are on it. And, and a lot of young actors, Billy Lord is in it and she's really exciting and fun to watch. And I'm excited by that. But, you know, I've worked with shit, man. I've worked with the actors where I've gone on the scene and I think I'm doing a good job and watch them wipe the floor with me. And I'm like, you know, <laughs> like, like when, like what? Oh, working uh, in Michael Clayton, working with Tilda, who's yeah. one of my favorite actors in the world. And one of my favorite, you know, she always plays these ice queens, right? Yeah. She's the warmest, funniest, greatest oh. woman you'll ever meet. But she's so good in that movie. And we have that really fun scene at the end where I'm like, you know, where should we be oh, yeah. in my yeah, car? Yeah, yeah. And just watching her react. And because I'm driving that scene as an actor. Yeah. So I'm doing all the pedaling on this one, right? I'm riding the bike. I'm doing it. You know, I have the long speech. And then when I see the film, I'm like, it doesn't matter what I do. Tilda's taking care of everything for us. She Because <laughs> I'm only as dangerous in that situation as she makes me, right? Because if she was like, oh, fuck you, then everything right. I say doesn't matter. So Tilda makes that scene work. And oh, when she drops to her knees, dude. Oh, yeah. Oh, she's what, I mean, great. I mean, she's just great. That movie, you know, was a was tricky to get made again. And we made it on a really low budget. And uh, again, it wasn't massively successful. I think it made about 50 million dollars over a period of time. But it but it lasts and holds up, you know, Pollock, man, Pollock. Yeah, yeah, boy. I love it. Oh. You know, it's funny. He finished shooting and then we op- we went to Venice with it. Uh, you know, so we finished it, let's say December or something. I don't remember. And by Venice Film Festival in September, we were headed there and Pollock was sick suddenly. And I called him and he's, you know, he's a pilot too. And he started describing, he was very sick. None of us knew how sick he was. And he says, I'm flying over the Lido looking down on, you know, on, uh, you know, St. Mark's and he's going through all of the, the ideas of soaring through Venice, you know, uh, and he was dead a few days later, you know, not long. Wow. Really? Yeah. It was, he was very sick and, and surprisingly so, you know, and it was so, I mean, he was really a interesting guy. And by the way, funnily enough, he was originally the director on out of sight. And when they hired me to do the part, he quit. Cause he said, you're not a movie star. <laughs> That's true. Really? Now, listen, we we were great friends, and we got along great later, and it was very funny. But, yeah, he quit. He goes, no, that guy's a TV star. I'm not doing a movie with him. Oh, my God. That's right. You had to do that whole transition. Oh, yeah. How long did it take for that to land? Well, it took the five years of ER because, you know, people don't really fully remember or understand the size of ER. You know, an hour show at 10 o'clock at night doing 40 million people. I mean, when there was 150 channels. Yeah. There'll never be anything like that. I mean, Friends was a huge hit. They were on an hour earlier at nine. And we were, for the first couple of years, we were doing five, 10 million more people than them. Wow. And at 10 o'clock, it was just a massive. So people weren't going to pay to see me in a film if they could, you know, turn on Thursday nights. So it took, it took, and there was a lot of articles written about how, you know, uh, this wasn't going to ever happen for me and stuff. And, uh, but, you know, I just kept working. So every, you know, summer I'd do a film and I was doing films during, while I was shooting the show. 
And, uh, and then the last year of ER, Oh Brother and Perfect Storm came out and Oh Brother for critical and Perfect Storm because it was a big commercial hit. Yeah. sort of planted the flag that he's going to make it and he's going to be allowed to play in this sandbox, which was, you know, luck again. What kind of, uh, like I recently watched um, Burn After Reading again. I, I oh, have yeah. to make my, well, I have to make myself watch it because I, 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 I like the Coen brothers generally yeah. and I, but I found that movie uh, annoying. Yeah. <laughs> Every, and I, you know, you, you know, I can see the choices you make in a good way. Like they, like, you know, this, these are comic characters, yeah. you know, and, and Pitt loves to eat and drink. I don't know what it, it is. is. He loves to eat. But, <laughs> For a guy that's built like that, something Michelangelo carved out of marble, he eats a lot. Yeah. Know? But he's always drinking on that straw. But like, where do you, what kind of, where'd you learn what you do? In terms of how you build these guys, I don't know. Is it just? It's just good scripts, you know. I mean, when I read that script, I actually wanted to play Brad's part because I thought Brad's part was just the funniest part I'd ever read, and yeah. and I think Brad just, I think it's one of the funniest things he's ever done, you know. I absolutely, it's absolutely, really funny. Um, and and I get to shoot him in the face, so it's worth it, you know, all along the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But you know, honestly. A good script saves you from so many flaws as an actor or as a director. Right. A good script saves you. And then they kind of, you know, Joel and, and Ethan were the kind of guys who just cut you loose. You know, they don't rehearse. They just start shooting. Right. It's one or two takes, you know, and then you're in. But they have high expectations, right? They do. I mean, they, but they know. cast well. You know, they cast the right people in the roles. And then they, you know, they leave you alone. I mean, if you watch uh, Hail Caesar – that's some really good casting in there, you know. Oh God, it's the greatest movie ever. When people start shitting, like, like I go to the mat for Hail Caesar. Yeah, I know. I like I I yeah. I th that movie's like the a double feature of Barton Fink and Hail Caesar would be the shit. Oh, that's, man. those are two like great that, films. I agree. The history of Hollywood, man. I know. <laughs> Josh, Josh is Brolin. how great is Josh? He's a re he's always good. He's a really good friend of mine, and like we send stuff that to each other over text messages that no human being should see like the dirtiest sure. filthiest stuff yeah and he just absolutely makes me he, he's you know he and like sasha baron cohen are the two funniest individuals in like real life that i know sure he just kills yeah. me and it was so much fun to do a scene where he's slapping me in my face <laughs> he just kills me the sort of act, the indulgence of that guy, the actor, you know, of him trying to figure oh, out yeah. communism was hilarious, man. Well, have you, I mean, you've been around some of the old, old some of the old movie stars have never yeah. had to face anything, never had to face any of the, the real world. So the ability, the, the narcissism that just sort of emanates from them yeah. is just like, sure. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, so the communists are. <laughs> I get it. Yeah, I just I I loved every every bit of that. So I guess we should talk about the 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 new movie a little bit, sure. the Tender Bar. Now, like this is not like any of the other movies you directed. No, but this is like really a, a coming of age rite mm -hmm. of passage. You know, it's it's about a kid. You know, kind of it's a sweet movie. Yeah. You know, I tell you, first of all, it was a good script. Bill Moynihan wrote the screenplay, and I read it and I liked it, and they'd send it to me to to direct. And I liked it. And I had just come out of finished doing Midnight Sky, which is the end of the earth. And I kind of felt that way at that period of time. And, yeah. you know, I started I, I, when I read the script, I was like, I need something. 
I need to do something that's there's some joy in it, that there's some uh-huh. gentleness and some, you know, um, it's not so dark. And uh, and there there was a really good feeling to this. And then I sent it to Ben, who's got a good ear. You know, Ben, I, I, we've talked about films over the years. How's he doing? He's doing great. I mean, you know, he's okay. such a he's in such a great place in his life. Good. And, was on the set. He was the first guy on the set. He knew everybody's lines. and But, you know, when I sent it to him, he really got it and said, I know what this is and I know who this guy is. And he really was excited about it. And I thought, well, you know, who better to play this part? And uh, and he really showed up in a way that um, I was very, I was very happy for him too, because, you know, it's, you get to a place in your career and sometimes you, um, you know, you, you can, out, you can overthink your, your your roles, you know, and you can go unless yeah. I'm the lead lead of the movie, then I'm not going to do it. As opposed to being the best part in the movie, you know, right? And he got it. There was a line in the movie that like that that sparked something, you know, in my brain, but I can't remember what it was. It was about the it was about the girlfriend when he realized like he didn't. I can't remember what it was. Why he he didn't understand why she she didn't like why him. she liked him. There's also a line in the movie that I love. Which is Ben says at the end when Ty go, says to him, you know, Ben says you got to get a job. And he goes, yeah, I don't know what that that is yet. And he goes, it's America. Pick something. And I always like that because that's a real American, you know, that is yeah point of view. I like the the whole kind of philosophy, cool uncle guy. It was he, he said she gives me hope. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And that and that really sparked me into this whole. Uh, it, it it kind of like it reconfigured. Like dealing with grief, yeah. You know, you 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 know, you're constantly. It 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 doesn't really go away, but it shifts, and you start. You know, you kind of deconstruct it. You, you do. Know, uh, it, it it happens. You don't even realize it's happening. Right. And that was one of those interesting kind of sad moments where that line had nothing to do with grief, yeah. but but it was like, oh my god. Oh. So um, let me ask you this then. So, yeah. um, because you had to deal with it, is does it ease? Does it get? Is there a does it lighten up or is it just there's moments yeah, where it's just yeah you know it 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 sure it does you know and and the saddest part about it was you know we we had just really sort of begun whatever it was we were going to be yeah and you know and she made some big changes in her life and you know and then the pandemic hit and uh, what I don't think I've dealt with is the anger because there's nothing you can do with it yeah. you know when you're going through it all you can really be is like you know I'm not the victim. You know, she was sure. and, you know, this happens and it's horrible and, you know, hopefully it'll it'll get easier and her memory will be a blessing. But last night I was like sort of like, you know what? I'm furious. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 there's what do you do with that? Right. There's nowhere to aim that. No, you really can't. There's no and there's no lesson to be learned. Right. There's no like, no. oh, so I shouldn't love. I shouldn't. No, right. You know, well, sacrifice. I do go to that one. Yeah, I do go but, to that. But one. You can't yeah, that, because uh, we'll because, we'll see. Don't challenge uh, me, George. Well, but that's <laughs> not the lesson to learn because the the, no, the real lesson to learn is that you know all of these journeys that we're on are really short. <laughs> They're really short, yeah. and it's whether it's super short and cut short or not, you know, my dad is 87 and my mom's 83 and they're still, you know, getting around and sparking, but they're, he's pissed off at being 87. He's like, he's mad because it's like, because uh, as William Holden said in network, the, the end is closer than the beginning with definable features, (laughs) you know, it's frustrating for him and he's mad about it. And, you know, not in the way that, 
harms you, but he's funny. And, but this journey is short, man. And so it's all about making sure that we, you know, I, I had this conversation with Amal the other day because I turned 60 and I said, look, we have to, we have to rethink how we're doing our lives because we're working a lot, both of us. She's working a tremendous amount as well. And I just said, uh, it doesn't mean we don't do our job because you got to do a job. If you don't have a job, sure, you're dead. Yeah, right. We also have to make sure that we're spending less time like behind a computer or doing, you know, going on locations um, so that we can know that I said 60 is a number. But I said, I've done all the physicals, knock on wood, you know, I'm in good shape. Uh, I feel yeah. healthy. But uh, 60, you can kind of beat the devil a little bit. Uh, 80, you can't. And that's no. 20 years from now. And 20 years happens in a flash and faster as you get older. So you have like that, that conversation. And I imagine that informs all the choices you're making in your life. It does. It does. And, and, you know, and so what you do is you look at it going, okay, well, I've sort of committed to a certain amount of work that I'm going to do, making sure that I'm going to do that because it's a commitment and it's the right thing to do. Uh, and she in the exact same place. And then it's going to take about a year, we figure. And then it doesn't mean she's going to stop taking the cases that she wants. It just means she's not going to take six, you know, and right. I'm not going to do yeah. four jobs a year. I'm going to do one. And we're going to spend time with our kids and we're going to travel again. And we're going to do, you know, because I really do believe we're, you know, uh, you know, we have a, a house with a lake with a rope swing. You know, I could still do the rope swing at 60. I'm not sure about 80. You know, I might <laughs> shit myself when I grab the rope. You never know. So I do feel like we have to we have to really attack this. And I think this is where some of your anger might be placed is in a good way, which is to go, well, then I'm going to make sure that if you've been given the gift of a longer version of this, that you're going to attack it. You know, yeah, I I think that's that's good advice, you know, uh, and I and I appreciate it. Uh, I think that's correct. And and yeah, and I have been doing more, George. I, I've been doing things that uh, I always wanted to do that I that I never did before. And and I do uh, I'm trying to spend time with people that that I like and not uh, mentally ill people that drain me. Yeah, well, that's helpful. It's also been a very draining time because of the pandemic. We're sort of. Yeah. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine to go through all that grief and also to be isolated is just, yeah. I mean, well, I mean the benefit of it was, you know, I'm doing material on it actually. And maybe you'll see it eventually if I do a special, but, or you come out, but, uh, but it was, it was interesting because I didn't have to function. Right. Uh, Right. uh, Oh yeah. So, you know, and I, you know, my brother was around and people, I was talking to people every day and I made decisions to live a certain life with, with among certain people even right. if it was dangerous so i wouldn't lose my mind right. but but the fact that i didn't have to show up for anything oh, you know really did help help me process it and do you have i have a question for you too because you know i used to play the a basketball the hollywood y and we played in this league that was all comedians it was the darkest yeah, i remember those guys it was the darkest group of people i've ever seen in my life i mean literally it was just hate all day sleep all night it was just hate and i loved them they were funny they made me laugh but is that do is that that darkness is that still as for you is that something that you still deal with is that a 
Well, you know what's interesting is like, you know, the darkness. I, I mean, those guys, I remember I used to go to the Hollywood Wise. You do those pickup games yeah. at noon or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, like, you know, there is a, an element to us that, uh, that, that has that darkness. But I don't know, man. I'm telling you, one thing that's happening with me is that when you deal with when you deal with what I dealt with, mm-hmm. your sense of life becomes different. And also the darkness, you start to realize, like, this is life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I'm not saying that life is dark, but there's a, a way to approach the things that people think are dark and horrible in a way that, you know, is is relatable. Well, yeah. And, and uh, it be- so there there's something about that darkness is if you handle it correctly, it's dark because no one talks about well, it. Well, that's so, right. And also, for instance, every great movie, every great love story ends in tragedy. Right. Somebody dies. Right. Yes, uh, yes, I was great friends with uh, with Gregory Peck and his wife Veronique. I loved them. I loved going to their house. They had these beautiful parties. They were a loving, incredible couple. And then Greg yeah. died, and I went to Veronique's house, and she was a shell of herself. You know, she wasn't the oh, same person. Yeah. You know, and she died not long after that. But I think out from a lonely heart more than anything. Yeah. And you go this love story that was so amazing. Ends in tra- you know, they all do. So sure. I think what you're saying is so rather than shy away from it, admit it and then say, well, sure. let's live our lives to make sure we get everything out of it. That's right. Because she was like that. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's a, it's what's the most important thing. And I think I maybe you can relate to it. But, yeah, I don't think yeah, I, it doesn't strike me that there's anyone out in the world saying, you know, fuck Clooney. He's an asshole. Oh, there is a lot. Sure. There's a lot. <laughs> But you wouldn't be succeeding if you didn't get death threats and shit. You know, I mean, come on. Well, yeah, but I'm not talking about like right wing weirdos. I'm talking about your peers. You know, you're a respected, nice guy or whatever. But my my point is, like, I just don't want to whatever I was given with with her, whatever, whatever she gave me Mm -hmm. in the time I spent with her. I want to hold on to that because that was growth. Right. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't about like her being here or there, like something opened up in me and that was growth. Right. So I don't want to slip back into prelin mark. Right. And, and not acknowledge whatever she gave me, you know, in terms of moving through the rest of my life. I think that's, I mean, honestly, that's the, that's the gift Right. That's the right. That's, that's the right. part of life. Yes. The only way it doesn't work is if you sort of deny it and force it out. The only way. Right. Work. Right. Or just or feel sorry for yourself or whatever. You know, I'm pushing, man. I'm I'm out doing comedy every night. I'm now the, the angry, broken hearted guy who, who actually needs love and uh, <laughs> and is doing comedy that way. Well, that works. It, it was just not a bad place to be. No, the but, angry is always funny. <laughs> yeah. If you're not taking it out on. People. Exactly. Like, you know, it's. You know, my anger is like, I don't know, it's it's a little different. You know, I, I, you, yeah. you're better off with a sad anger is better. It is anger, anger. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but uh, but you have a lot of great friends. It seems yeah. like, you know, that you've kept up with you for years. Sure. Kind of. Yeah. The same guys. Yeah, friends are important. Same guys for 40 years. I met them all almost at the same time. Grant, who's, uh, you know, we're quarantining together. We were co-producers on I don't know how many things, you know, we we've done. You loan me a hundred bucks to get headshots and. 1982 you know um we you know and his brother and my all my other buddies we've been friends since the day we met and it's helpful i'll tell you yeah it's helpful to have these people that you love and also know you know like you know when things are going good everybody tells you how great you are you know right and and your friends will say 
will tell you how not great you are, which is always good. Yeah. And then sure, when things yeah. are going bad and everybody tells you how bad you are, your friends are also there to tell you you're not that bad. And that's, yeah. and that's what you need. You do. You need people that if you have to call them every day, you call them every yeah. day. And that they don't rely on you for their, um, uh, their substance, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's great talking to you, man. Yeah, it's really good to talk to you. And, uh, and uh, good luck with this, this journey. It's, Thank you, sir. Um, and uh, I hope you I hope you do this uh, comedy special soon because I'd like to see it. Well, I'm working on it. I'm going to premiere it. I'm going to be at Town Hall in New York City for the festival in November. And then, you know, we'll find you'll figure out you know, if there's somebody who wants to do it. Sure. You know, I'll probably land it somewhere. Great. Good luck with the movie. Thanks, brother. All right. Talk to you soon. George Clooney. What a charming, nice fella. Am I right? Doesn't take much to charm me, does it? Yes, it does, actually. But I think he was genuine and authentic and a nice guy. Uh, maybe we can have, uh, we'll have dinner someday. Maybe. Come on, he knows me. He knew me from the thing. He listens to my thing. Why can't I have dinner with George Clooney? Are you going to stop me from having dinner with George Clooney? Like a bridge over troubled water. I will you my. Monkey, La Fonda, Cat Angels Everywhere.